It was about a decade ago, and David Shorter was looking for his next research project. He's a professor in the Department of World Arts and Culture's Dance at UCLA. And I received a phone call from a librarian who said that they'd found a database on a server that wasn't very active, and they wanted to know if I wanted to look at it. The librarian knew that David had just published a book based on two decades of fieldwork with a tribe in Mexico, and that he'd created an online tool that indigenous groups could use to preserve their languages. So he knew about the ethics of working with indigenous knowledge and intellectual property. So I could see why they reached out to me about the archive. It was at that time called the Archive of Traditional Medicine. And what had happened was there was a professor who had worked for a long time compiling the largest database of medicinal folklore from around the world. And he had worked on this project probably for a total of 35 years. When it was all said and done, there were over a million four by six note cards. And he had compiled all this material and then passed away. Another professor took it over and digitized the archive and then retired. So then it was just sitting there probably for years without really people knowing about it. The librarian wanted to know if Shorter thought there was any value to the archive. And I looked at it and I was blown away. I mean, there's 700 to 800,000 data points on healing from all over the world. Shorter became the director of this database and he renamed it the Archive of Healing, Ritual and Transformation. In fact, in some ways, you might want to say it's fantastic that no one knew about it, because this day and age, someone could have created a mining program and essentially just pulled all the material from the database. So we immediately put it into a secure um, server. And for the last three, four years, we've been curating the data, and we're about to go live later this year. This is Works in Progress, a podcast from the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. I'm Avishai Artsy. On this episode, Ancient Approaches to Healing During a Time of Sickness. It's April 2020. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. Hospitals are overrun, personal protective equipment is in short supply, and a vaccine appears to be months away at least. So it's no wonder that people are looking for quick fixes and silver bullet solutions. Like, literally, people are taking colloidal silver to prevent the novel coronavirus— Or some people are using vitamin C, freshly boiled garlic water, even drinking bleach? David Shorter is used to dealing with the cultural fringe. After all, he teaches a popular class called Aliens, Psychics, and Ghosts, and he knows that some of those alternative treatments are ridiculous and even harmful. But he says there are a lot of traditional healing practices that aren't scams and have been around for centuries. We're creating sections for like midwifery. There's already an essay that was written by um, a scholar on abortion and herbal approaches to abortion. And the whole goal here is to democratize what we think of as healing and knowledge about healing and take it across cultures in a way that's respectful and gives attention to intellectual property rights. There's certain data that will never be pulled up anymore from that original database. You would have to have administrative access to see what it was from the original contents that we received. But 
I would say a good 60% of it will be open. And it's those data points that we looked at and we saw, okay, there's nothing there that's capitalizable. It doesn't mention particular plant names or combinations that someone can make a lot of money off of, unless of course that information is generally known already, or there's no way to locate where that information came from. So for example, you might have a combination of three plants that are used to heal something and it mentions a community or a tribal nation where that comes from, we're not gonna release that information. That, that material is now private because we're gonna go into another process where um, you might wanna say it's split into two modes. One mode is that we're gonna work with those communities where we know that community offered that information in some form, like through a previous anthropologist or field worker. The other route that we're gonna go is we're gonna use the database as a means to foster classroom work at UCLA where students can work with the archive and also work with communities around LA or Southern California to help them develop community-based approaches to health. So for example, you might have someone who has a community garden inside a primary working class or Latino neighborhood, and we wanna get some of the funds from the archive of healing that might be generated from either subscriptions, advertisement, or investments. And we want to put that into helping students learn about healing across culture. And the approach that you're describing in working with and alongside indigenous communities, is that a relatively modern approach to collecting these kind of archives? And is that the approach that you think was taken when the Archive of Healing began as a project? I would say that that was the primary reason why, instead of choosing a couple other avenues for research, I jumped on this one. Because I don't think the material was collected in a mindset that we now are in, which is that the very first step that one should take is having conversations with people outside the university about how knowledge circulates. And so I really truly wanted to avoid a resource extractive model of knowledge sharing here where only certain people give knowledge and other people benefit from it. I wanted to, you might want to say, throw a wrench in that machine and say, how can I actually get the benefit back to the communities where the knowledge came from or other communities of need using that knowledge? So for example, there's a lot of things in people's kitchen cabinets, for example, spices or herbs that are great for ailments that people experience all the time, like headaches or stress or common colds, flus, menopause, all these sort of things. Well, people don't actually necessarily know that because they've become dislocated from that long ancestral knowledge that had that information. One of the goals here is how can we use some of that information from the archive of knowledge to create perhaps little laminated cards that go to working class communities or urban communities that they could have right there in their kitchen. That way they spend less money on pharmaceuticals and allopathic approaches and they start actually circulating knowledge that's shared among people rather than coming from top down. Hmm. So are you saying that when I go to my local cafe and order a turmeric latte, that's not something that we just learned about in the last few years? <laughs> that's absolutely right. A turmeric goes back probably 5,000 years as an anti-inflammatory. So, I mean, I, I've had to be on a crash course myself. There's so much I learned. It, it is interesting because I not only worked those last couple of years with a healer in the Yoame community in Mexico, but in a sense that almost feels like my life is coming full circle. I was sent to live with my great grandmother when I was born and I lived with her for the first six years of my life. And she was a sort of community healer. She was a midwife. People would come to her house to help them with their health. She had herbs in the back. She would make little tinctures and concoctions. And so even though I have some of this inside, you might want to say my own deep interest and lineage, 
I have gone through the archive of healing myself, not all 750,000 data points because that's almost impossible, but I'm working my way through it. And the stuff that I'm learning is exactly this, where you'll read something about like turmeric mixed with a little honey and just a dash of cinnamon. And, you know, now we use like probably soy milk or almond milk, but previously they would use goat's milk or cow's milk. And it's one of the most fantastic anti-inflammatories that you can imagine. To this day, I have that exact drink that you just mentioned. Right. It seems like as organized religion has lost influence among a younger generation, they've regained interest in more traditional forms of mysticism, spirituality, and healing, I think. Collecting crystals and doing things that probably people did thousands of years ago, but now suddenly feels very new. Now we're all burning sage in Palo Santo, and we're reclaiming things that maybe we don't know have that kind of indigenous connection. Yeah, I'm kind of blown away by that. And I'm it's actually born out of necessity in some ways. It's not simply that things that were cool sort of circulate every 20 or 25 years. It's that we're seeing a generation that's looking at a healthcare system that has failed them, in which healthcare costs are outrageous. We're facing a global pandemic right now where people are recognizing that the health system that you have to rely on is oftentimes prohibitive in terms of cost. And you have these other people who are perhaps contributing to their communities in brand new ways with exactly this sort of knowledge. So, for example, people can't buy hand sanitizer, but there's a lot of herbs that if you mix, they make a natural sanitizer. And I was just telling my father the other day, who was really upset that he couldn't find any alcohol, and I was explaining to him, well, you know, don't you have any Listerine? Isn't that one of your primary, like, I remember Listerine always being in your bathroom. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, dad, that's like 40% alcohol. Like, that's, (laughs) if you don't mind that your skin's going to have a little minty feeling, then just use that. There's things all around us. There's plants all around us. There's, you might want to say this entire global pandemic is making us think a little bit more about where we get our medicines from. And I have to give credit to Jane Goodall, who was going to give a talk at UCLA. And when she was asked about this, she, I think, hit the nail right on the head when she said that what we're seeing here is a need to stop thinking about animal parts and animals as resources for our medicine. And we need to be reminded that that's what plants have been. And so we need to reform those relationships with the plant world so that we better understand not only how we contribute to them and how we help plants grow and cultivate, but how, in fact, they do the same for us. I know you're a Reiki master. You have a Reiki studio in Van Nuys. Are you noticing an uptick in interest in alternative healing techniques? Without a doubt. I mean, I think there's a reason why that's always fallen within the category of the esoteric is that it's not actually supposed to be popular. It's not supposed to be widely known. It's for the people to seek it out and find it in their lives. And for me, I have been circulating in these sort of networks most of my life. And so to me, some of this stuff is really old. And this is one of the reasons why in my class at UCI on um, cross-cultural healing, we sort of look at how the terms that we use become really problematic, like the new age, because there's not really anything new about it. But what's new is a need to put it in balance with things like decolonial practices so that we don't do resource extraction, so that we understand who is actually maintaining the ironwood or the Palo Santo, who's getting the sage, in what way are they getting it. And one of the things that this helps me do is think of healing outside of object-orientated means. So, for example, a lot of people think of medicine or healing as only something that is done by doctors um, who are certified as such by medical schools. 
But we actually know that women were kicked out of the medical field for hundreds of years and that when they started forming American medical schools, they didn't give any of those monies to women's colleges or historically black colleges. So what we're looking at is a type of medical practice that is structured by inequality. And now we know these things so that when we go to these not new age but old age, we're not saying that we're asking for something that's alternative. We're asking for something that's complementary. And x-ray still works. Antibiotics still work. The germ theory of disease, which really kicked off, you know, I would say in the um, 1800s, it's still actual. We do have germs in the world. The thing is, is that there's a lot of knowledge that we then judged as somehow being folklore, untrue, unverifiable, unscientific, um, old wives' tales, which is a very gendered um, way of saying it. And all of that knowledge has been living in communities that are protecting it. So how do we share knowledge without relying and taking from the exact same communities that have already been paying the price from the structural inequality? That's the question. That's what makes it new. So for example, I have conversations regularly with people who are invested in either paganism or witchery, people who involve themselves in doula work, either death doula or birth doula. And what I see is that they are building community relations first with the native people around them, with the Latino communities around them, for those people doing African spirituality. They're actually in conversation. If they are not themselves tapping into their own lineage, they're in conversation with people to help them guide them or to put them in touch with elders who can help them do it in an appropriate way. And I think that that's what's changed. That's what makes it new, if anything. I see. So it's more of like a, an evolution of how we think about these practices and sort of giving respect to the people who they originated with instead of just appropriating it and exploiting it, like had been done for a long way. For yeah, that's a, a fantastic way to frame it. It's that this knowledge hasn't necessarily disappeared. It is perhaps hibernated. I mean, if you start studying seed germination, you recognize that there's these life cycles of life that perhaps don't look like they're living, but in fact, they look like an object, but they're not an object. And that's really interesting that there's life there in that thing that you think is a thing. Well, it's not really a thing at all. That's why I love the archive of healing because 40% of it is plant-based medicine or performative approaches to healing, which means that it gets you out of that object-orientated approach to medicine, which is if I have this thing and I'm going to take this thing and the doctor doesn't need to ask me anything about my relationships, my dreams, what I'm eating, because they're just going to prescribe this thing and it's going to fix my thing. Well, this new way, you might want to call it, is so old because it's about building relations. What are my relations with the plants? How am I actually engaging with the plant? What am I thinking about and how am I going about the process of planting these plants, forming the relationships with the plant world, the animal world around me, my human relatives? It's, all, it's much more sort of, um, I would say, a more difficult work, but in some ways it's really needed now more than ever. It's more of a somatic approach to illness, right? It's not just the body or not just the mind, but it's the harmony between them. Gosh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that's happening this last week because there's some people in my circles who've passed away because of the C-19 in the last week. And what I've recognized is that in the one case I'm thinking about, his wife is quarantined because she also has it, but she didn't die of it. But we can't actually do the things we would normally do. We can't go hold space with her. We can't go hug her. We can't sit with her quietly and feed her and make sure she has food. We have to leave packages out of her door. And I have to tell you that I think a lot of us are becoming quite aware that teaching is different remotely. 
conversations. You might want to use one of these online tools to have a happy hour, but it's not the same because people sharing space has an energetic effect. I used to think of teaching as something I could do two to three times in one day because I'm so energized by being there around students and talking to them, engaging. When I teach remotely, I feel so drained. It's like almost as if I'm not in this dynamic in which it's intersubjective and it's it's lively and I'm able to see any aspect of the twitch of the eyebrow that tells me they don't understand that sentence or they do understand that sentence. So it's really, it's really a moment right now where we're asking ourselves all the types of structures that we were living in, do they still serve us? Do they still work for us? Or is this the time to change them? Eventually, if things do go back to normal, it'll be so easy to just revert back to the structures that were already there and our way of doing things. I'm, I'm wondering what do we do as a culture and as individuals to try to take the lessons that we're learning during this period and bring them with us after we leave this time? Well, I think the first thing we do is consider what normal was and who normal was serving. I think normal as the means of thinking about our habitual life, our day-to-day practice, our work practices, how we choose to relate or not relate to others. I don't think that we're being offered a moment to get away from that and then we're gonna go back to it. I think we're being offered a moment to reconsider who that was working for and who it was serving. Why did such a few amount of people become so wealthy and successful in um, Western terms? when in fact so many other people were losing a means and ways of having modes of sustenance for their life in healthy ways. So I don't want to go back to that kind of normal and I would sort of apply a ritual approach to this moment and a ritual approach would mean that in a ceremony or a ritual you take structure and then you throw it out to chaos where almost anything could happen and then that return is not supposed to be a return back, it's a return to life, but anew, where new structures are created, new understandings have been made possible. So in that way, you might want to say, bad dreams might suck, but they happen for a reason. Now, sometimes that reason is because you ate a spicy burrito at 1 a.m., but sometimes (laughs) that bad dream is telling you about what scares you and what you're afraid of. And isn't it better to know what you're afraid of and what scares you and look at it directly rather than to lay some level of like the subconscious or underneath your awareness? This moment is by no means, I'm not trying to make it a positive feel good moment because people are dying and there's a lot of people who are losing jobs. I'm trying to, in some ways, make it an opportunity where we can see how the old structures weren't working for us. And so we are all responsible Whether you're a capitalist or an anarchist, communist, democratic socialist, whether you're an artist or a creative person of any type, this is your moment in some ways to ask, where are your priorities? Where does your ethical center lie? And how do you act on that moving forward? And I think that that we're going to have a lot more pain coming up. I don't think this thing's going to be ending anytime soon, but... For me, just thinking about my own meditative practices and how I've been in conversation with those people I call my community, we're trying to hold space for each other and recognizing that we have to be there for each other because going alone isn't going to do it anymore. When you're teaching, are you finding that your students can focus on the material and the coursework, or are you more talking to them about their emotional state of being and um, trying to make sense of all that's happening? Can your students even focus on the class right now? Yeah, that's a really important pedagogical question I've been considering. I 
am at UCLA where we're on the quarter system, which means that we started up at the end of March. And my pedagogical approach this last week was to go ahead and start class out um, for each of them. But every single class was before we get into any course material, can we just check in on where we're at individually? Like what kind of things are coming up for you? And while they were talking, I was sort of making a list of all the things I need to be conscientious about as a person who's new to remote teaching, but also as a person who, frankly, whether I agree with it or not, they do hold me in a position in which I'm supposed to be helping them, right? Now, the state of of California is expecting me to help them with education and critical thinking, critical reading and writing skills. But I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't also in some ways holding a space where I could help them in broader ways, like understanding how it's time to be compassionate with their parents, that it's a time to ask yourself, what are other people struggling with and how can we go into a mode of network building rather than isolation? And what would that look like in a time of social isolation? What kinds of experiences are your students having right now? Well, they are looking forward to the readings more than I thought. I have received emails where students have said, I've gone into the readings for next week already. And I was thinking, are you kidding me? Like, why are you doing that to yourself? Like, why don't you just relax and not do so much? But I think that for some people, there's a desire to just focus on something. I'm into that. That's awesome as a teacher. Everyone wants to hear that your students are excited about what you think they should read. I'm also slightly suspicious about this rush to productivity at the moment. And so I, the week before classes start, went through my syllabus and just removed one third of all total readings and moved half of all the assignments just out of it. Because I want us to take this opportunity to do less, do it more slowly, do it with more thought. This is a call to teachers to ask them how not only can they ask less of their students and be more present with them in terms of emotions and psychological wellness, but also how can we as teachers get back to basics? instead of worrying about lapel mics and lighting and good bandwidth. Maybe this is about just slowly reading something that's really important to you and to them in a shared field and doing it closely and talking about it every once in a while rather than pop quiz next Tuesday. You see what I'm saying? Like there's a different model that we're being called to exercise. I like that you raised the issue of productivity. I've certainly felt that pressure myself. I think there's even a New York Times story recently that was like, it's okay to be unproductive. And I think that's probably just because like our culture is so focused on productivity and that we're not going to let, you know, a pandemic get in the way of us getting our work done. We have to recognize the structure that we're working within this capitalist system is rampant. It's it's hypercapitalism. It's profit at all costs even if you have to destroy the earth that you're allegedly dependent upon to do it. And so the value that we put on human labor has been out of sync with social balance and community balance since the 16th century and growing exponentially every hundred years since then. And that is not just capitalism, it's colonialism and it's how it moved across the globe. And now we're seeing a form of capitalism that looks a bit like um, colonialism in a different light, which is that we have a government that's saying, this sector of people should keep working who are coincidentally the least paid and were given the least respect before. So this is accentuating, it's bringing into severe focus the unequal ways that we have valued your work versus my work versus the person next to me's work. 
we've seen labor as somehow being typed. So Silicon Valley work is somehow more valuable in society than the nurses who are wearing garbage bags right now for protection against the viral infection. This is really a messed up system. I hope we're at the end times for that. That was David Shorter. He is the director of the Archive of Healing and a professor in the UCLA Department of World Arts and Culture's Dance. I'm Avishai Artsy, and this is Works in Progress, a production of the UCLA School of the Arts and Architecture. Email us at worksinprogress at arts.ucla.edu. Our music is composed by Austin Danson. Take care and talk to you soon.